Hello there, and welcome to this, the third episode in our More Than Mostly Comedy podcast series. It's an exciting series, of which this is the third one. In case you don't know, we are Doggett and F. Grave, your hosts, you could say, for this podcast. You could say that. I'm Glyn Doggett. And I'm David F. Grave. Later on in this episode, you'll get to hear an interview we recorded with cult comic legend Richard Herring in which we discuss what it was like to approach his 10th consecutive Edinburgh Festival show, We're All Going to Die. But before that, we're going to share with you an interview we recorded back in February 2013 with Nick Helm. Nick is a twice Foster's Comedy Award Best Show nominee, which is obviously very impressive. And in this interview, he talks about how early appearances at Mostly Comedy helped him to gain confidence in his act. Not that either me or Glenn are taking any credit for that, of course. And Nick also talks about his fear of performing and also how he approaches writing new material. So, without further ado, let's have a listen to that right now. Cool, so we're sat here with Nick Helm at the moment. Hi, <laughs> Nick. How are you doing? Hello. Uh, you played our fourth ever Mostly Comedy, which was... I did. 2009, I think it 2000... was. Yeah, it was 2009. I did it a few times, though, haven't I? I did yeah, it a yeah, few yeah. times. I did it because I, uh, I remember you used to record it all. And send us DVDs of that's right. Yes. And actually, the first, uh, the the fourth mostly comedy. What when was that? What date? The first one was like it was our fourth one, so that must have been about January, oh, December two thousand and nine. I think something like December that. December two thousand and nine. Because oh, I remember, I think, I think that that was the first twenty that I had ever done. Oh really? And until then, I was only doing fifteen. And it was the first time that I ever did a song on stage. Oh right. really? Because I needed to extend my set by five minutes, so I did a song. And when you sent me, and I knew at the time, it was like, that was the first gig that I did, that I actually turned a corner, and I felt like, I've actually really learned something now, and I felt like I'd gone up a step. Not, I'm not like saying, if I watched it now, I wouldn't go, oh God, that's fucking awful. Mm. But, I mean, am I swearing? No, no you can swear, so go for it. Uh, but, but do you know... Um, do you know what I mean? It's just like, if I watched it now, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'd still, I'm not like saying it was amazing. I'm just yeah. like saying, for me, as a performer, that was the first gig... That I did where I kind of did all the elements. I think I did a poem and one liners and yeah, I remember jokes. That, yeah. And then I did a song at the end and it was kind of like, oh, this works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I've done that since then. But um, so that was really good. And then when you sent me the video, it was kind of like, oh, I used to, and not like loads. And it's, it's not like, I was fully closed when I was watching it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I used to like watch it and kind of go, oh, I'd, I'd learned a lot from that gig. And then when I got booked again mm. it's kind of like I'd always feel like I had to write new stuff or of course I've done previews here as well yeah you did yeah. Um, your first yeah. ever Edinburgh show uh, full hour show was uh, previewed here. Keep hold of the gold. Was that keep hold of the gold? gold. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. in the old in our that, first venue. That was our yeah. last one actually at the George because we moved. Oh, we didn't yeah. know we were going to move them, but we yeah. moved up there. Yeah, I remember that. That was really that was really weird, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't really weird. It was. It was just. It was because it was so. It was it, stressful I, doing an hour as well. I think we've always found with uh, with our previews that they they it's never the fault of the show, but it, I think audiences find it weird when they're suddenly watching an hour and they've been used to watching sort of everyone come on and do sort of 15 yeah. minutes. Also, no matter how many times you tell people that you're going to be doing new material yeah. and that you advertise it as like a preview yeah. of new material, people always expect that there's going to be some semblance exactly. of an actual show. Yeah. And, and even though you tell them and you repeat it throughout the yeah. show, they're still quite angry or disappointed that it's yeah. not a final show. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite hard uh, with previews. Trying to balance it. I think as well with that venue as well, because a lot of people sort of standing at the back. I remember being really. Packed, it's quite a so high stage as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's sort of patience. 
yeah. uh, you know, the George, I mean, the, the George sort of patience of the audience can waver quite quickly if they're not comfortable. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an area and there are people standing at the bar. But I remembered that gig because sometimes you'd do a joke and it was the people, right. uh, sometimes people would be talking at the back. And I remember uh, somebody told me about it. I, thought, I can't remember who it was, but someone did one of the gigs before. It might have been James Acaster. Uh, that right. There was a guy so, who heckled him in that gig. Yeah, yeah. he did always second through. never one. Right, and he said yeah. that there was a thing about the bar, people standing at the bar and talking. I remember yeah. that I felt like a, a certain sense of achievement that when I was on stage, <laughs> the people were talking at the bar and then they shut up and then they started turning around. By the end of it, they were all joining in. And, yeah. uh, and it was, I thought that was, I loved that venue, it's really good. I remember the first time I did it as well, uh, there was kind of, there used to be kind of like loads of like skater boys that drank downstairs. Yeah, and they were, and I just before I went on stage, one of them called me a prick or something like that. <laughs> they started on me outside, I was like, I'm going to die on my ass here. And then it went really well, I was really happy about it. I actually. think because none of them ever came in. No. It was like, yeah. so people came to mostly comedy, but they weren't the good drinkers. Well, it's not like I looked like I was a comedian, do you know what I mean? No, no, yeah. I was kind of dressed normally and yeah, then yeah. they literally <laughs> like oh wow this place is nice remember we'd have similar right. things we'd be carrying like a keyboard a massive piano up the stairs at the back mm. and a similar sort of thing someone calls you a, a and they say and then they, they, they say the the going, oh, tell, tell yeah. us a joke mate tell us a joke you're like yeah. oh, fuck off but then you were carrying the piano and you did look like a performer didn't you true that is true that is the thing yeah. 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 a scarf around my neck and stuff I looked a bit kind of actory yeah grand piano pushing it up a fire escape yeah not a lot of fun not a lot of fun no I was going to ask you, because you did quite a few Edinburgh's, didn't you, before you sort of went into doing the thing on you on your own? Yeah, I did Edinburgh. Oh, I did Edinburgh three times with uh, my school. Um, I did... What, uh, I think I what was it? Yeah, the, my drama teacher uh, used to come to see me at the George, actually. Um, oh, yeah. And she, uh, she took us up. We did a production of... Uh, 1997, so I must have been like 16, I think. Um, yeah. And we went up and we did uh, Romeo and Juliet, and then we did a, a, another play the year after, and then we did Twelfth Night the year after that. And then, um, and I really liked Edinburgh, and I, I really liked it. And then I went to university, and then um, I missed Edinburgh, I missed doing it, so I started writing my own shows and taking them up. And then no one came to see them, really. So, were you acting? Was that your sort of background then, acting? No, I mean I I, I like I mean I quite liked acting, although I find I find performing really horrific. I find mm. it really nerve wracking, and I oh, really I, I, I like what yeah. stage performing. Even or? this, like even stand up, I, I can. I you know, if somebody told me before every gig, oh it's okay, you can go home. I go home because I yeah, just yeah, yeah. if I could have any excuse not to do it, I'd do it because I just find it so terrifying. But afterwards, you, and while you're doing it and it's going well, it's great, and then afterwards I feel great about it. But it's just the build up to actually doing it yeah. stage performing as well especially in a play when you've got that much to learn and if you mm. don't I think that's actually why so I used to write stuff and learn stuff and then go up and do stuff we had small audiences and uh, it was a lot of work for minimal uh, results yeah. and then when I, I just wanted to try stand up once and so I did stand up and then it's just like oh god so the amount of work that you have to put that is, let's, if you write sev if you write for seven months and you perform for a month then it's lopsided. But if you write for a week and then you can perform it for eight years, yeah. then that's you know like I wrote a song. It took me five minutes to write that song. Uh, I wrote "He Makes It Fat," for instance. I've written other stuff, but for instance, for that that song took me five minutes to write. And I think Avalon have paid me four separate times to do that right. on yeah. you know on like pilots and like uh, Russell Howard. I did. Um, I you did that on um, 
I did that on Live at the Electric, the electric as well. Do you know, but they, they, Russell Howard's good news on Live at the Electric, but it's Avalon shows, and they paid me twice to do it separately on right. TV, and then we did two pilots, and they paid me for that, and it's just kind mm. of like, well, that took me five minutes to do. And yeah. it literally used to take me, oh, I think I did one play, and it took me seven years to write the play, like on and off. Yeah. I got one star in the Scotsman. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, at least you the Scotsman to, uh, to review you. We didn't yeah. get... We didn't invite them. <laughs> <laughs> didn't invite them, just came up and gave us one star. And then they phoned us up the next day, they didn't phone me up, they phoned up the theatre, and they said... Uh, it was a printing error and it was actually two stars <laughs> and it was oh, like cool. oh that made it a lot better mm, that yeah. made it a lot better that's a bit uh, like for us the first time we went up to Edinburgh we took like a comedy play that yeah written, and we put so much work into it and we were really and money really happy. <laughs> a lot yeah. of money yeah, a lot of money mm. we didn't have and you know you think this is sort of the best thing we've done and then you take it up there and we made a bit of a mistake because it was a three-hander and we basically made the other guy the funny guy yeah and we were trying to sell ourselves as a double act but we weren't the funny people in the show. So. But it's just, you know, and then you get two stars and you think, oh, it's just, yeah. and then you go back in and you think, I'm losing money every day. And so But it was, yeah. I, I think that that was quite important because when I'd written that show and then, uh, and then it came out as a printing error, but not before, before I knew it was a printing error, it was one star. And it kind of made me just think that all of that was a load of bollocks, actually. And right, yeah. Not that their opinions don't count at all, but their opinions don't actually count to me because I know what I got out of that. Yeah. And whether it was great art or not, I know how much I put into it and I know what I learned from that experience. And that's nothing that you can review. And yeah, I yeah. think that's actually taught me quite a lot in terms of how to move on with my career. It's just kind of like people will say things, but as long as you know, especially like when you do a preview on new material, you've got to know why you're doing that. Yeah. I know what I'm going to get out of tonight. And it might not look like I know what I'm doing to you, as an audience, but I know that at the end of the night, I will definitely know whether that bit works or that bit doesn't work, mm, yeah. and I'll either rewrite that or I'll never do it ever again. Mm. And that's the learning experience that you have. And so you just got to kind of keep your head down. It's a good lesson. I but think. do you get a lot of confidence from the sort of success you've had over the last sort of year or, or two? Does that give you the confidence to then go, fuck it, right? I'm going to do something, you know, keep you going. That sort of. Not really. I mean, I, I, I think as soon as I get, maybe it's a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm not remotely confident in what I do. Um, and I think if I was confident, then that might affect the way I write or the way I perform, because it seems to yeah. work the way I do it, but it's really fueled on fear. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and also it's the thing, I don't see creativity, I mean, there's different ways of being creative, but I don't necessarily see creativity as a bottomless pit. I think of it as kind of like, well, that was a good, like, for instance, you know, you write a song mm. and you can encapsulate a, a concept or an idea and you can just absolutely nail it in one song uh, and therefore there's no point in tackling that again. So once you've done it, you've done it. Mm. It's like if Mickey Flanagan was to write another, you know, like, like a routine about staying in and you're mm. like, well, you've already done, you're like going out and doing, there's no point. It's, do you know what I mean? So it's not like a bottomless pit. It's like once you've tackled something or for instance, you know, uh, let's say Stuart Lee has done uh, a routine and you, you can't do that, right? That, that's someone yeah. else's routine. As soon as someone else has written the routine and nailed it, it's kind of pointless to do it. Yeah. So it's not like this bottomless pit of ideas and maybe you can find another angle to it, but you've always got to work around what other people have already done before you. Yeah. And I think that in actual fact, whatever success I've had, it's kind of quite apparent. It makes me panic because I've been going for quite a long time, mm. and then to think that you know, well, they've, they've, this, they've people have started paying attention to me, yeah. right as all of my ideas are running out, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you just think, yeah. fuck, I've got to do another fucking Edinburgh show, yeah. or, but you know, and then you end up, you know, having to like 
write a show on the train on the way up and it's just it's horrific I suppose you've used all that stuff that you built up over a long period of time that was like that's, but that's that's the, that's the actual really positive thing is the fact that um, whenever I start a, a new show I've got 10 10, 12 years to look back on and go well that never made it into any of the shows that's always been a rock I always start every show with rollover material so that I can always do new material at a gig and try and work out you know know, something that's different from what they've already seen Mm. you know and then whether that makes it into the final show or not at least I'm not doing old material I'm doing well all like old material that people have seen I'm doing kind of like um, so I do have kind of like a bit of that's the good thing about not 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 getting anywhere for a long time. Yeah. Is the fact that you, you've got loads of stuff to look back on. Yeah, yeah. But it's generating new material because now that I'm so I'm, I'm very busy and I'm being kind of like I'm working on lots of different projects and then I've got Edinburgh to do and I've got all of these things. You don't have as much time to write on. Uh, so you're writing on on the hoof as you as you're, as you're going, uh, and you just the quality is never going to be as good. It's no. like it's like it's like when um, I don't know. It's like when you. you, you, you you can say that like Michael McIntyre started off and he was really fresh and now he's got a bit like, oh, he's quite predictable. Yeah. And that's kind of like, well, that's what happens. Is, is If you're famous for being Jack D and everything that happens in your life is you've got to moan about it, then it is, there's a formula to it yeah. because that's the easiest way to write because you don't have 10 years to think, well, what am I going to do for my next show? Right. You've, yeah. got, you've, got, you've got two weeks to start touring again, you know? So it's kind of... It's horrific. There must be a point when that slows down a bit. You sort, of, you sort of then choose, right, I'm going to do this now, I'm going to spend time on this, I'm not going to do anything for a while. When does that happen? I don't know when... I don't, I don't know when that happens, because I know that, you know, because um, Frank Skinner kind of worked really hard, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he kind of... It felt like he was having a rest. And you read his autobiography, and it kind of like... He wasn't resting, he, he was really pissed off that he wasn't working. Right. And now he's kind of like coming back and, and doing like TV and radio and stuff, and it's kind of... But it, you get feeling... It's actually quite a difficult unless you're you continually this is quite a bleak conversation but unless you continually have an output yeah then people literally will move on yeah do you know what i mean as soon as as soon as as soon as like an older generation go away you've always got people like josh whittacombe coming along and kind of like filling in the gaps for you know and he's kind of like being groomed at the moment to be mr entertainment you know um and uh and he's great you know he's my friend and I'm not like, <laughs> not like saying anything no, negative no, about him. No. But as soon as, as soon as, uh, <laughs> I don't know, as soon as Rufus Hounds kind of decides not to do anything, then you've got Josh Whittacombe to fill his place. Not yeah. that they're comparable in any way, no, but my no. point being, you know, that, um, that you just got to keep churning stuff yeah. out <laughs> until people are sick of you or until you, you know, get involved in a domestic and get taken to court and then. <laughs> Yeah, have a career in it. It's done for you. Yeah. Just just thinking of uh, what you were saying about performing and sort of always having that fear of doing any performing. Was that like that with the TV, the the pilot you did for the sort of that the acting stuff? Because obviously that was I've never acting on TV. Every time I do any telly, it's just. Still nervous because obviously that's recorded as well. Yeah, but uh, stuff like eight out of ten cats is just probably the most horrific. Really. I mean, I've heard that other other ones are worse. Other panel shows are worse, but yeah, Tin Cats is, uh, is is a bad day. It's a bad week, really, because you get the you know, you've got like a couple of days to prepare for it. 
So you have like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it's just a. You get topics, they give you sort of topics of discussion. Yeah, and also you've got usual common sense as well, it's about like what has actually been in the news, and you've got to write stuff, and they kind of like give you, because not everyone's a comedian, like Claudia Winkleman will be on, and she's not a comedian, she doesn't spend all of her time thinking about things and writing jokes about them, so there's kind of like, they hold your hand through a lot of it, but as a comedian, you kind of like write your own stuff, or try and find your own angle for it, so, but it's just a, it's just a really bad day, but stuff like when I did Uncle, I'd never done any, I'd never, I've always kind of like tried to say yes to everything, just because if I didn't like it, I wouldn't do it again. Mm. But with Uncle, I kind of gave that a go. And if I was shit at it, then I'll... You know. It was great. I, I, I really liked it as a, as a concept. And as a, and I, 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 I really... I really. Well, the thing is, I, it took me a couple of days to actually enjoy it and enjoy acting on set because you're mm. just surrounded by hundreds of people. Not hundreds, but like tens of people. On a busy film set, there's like 40, 50 people waiting mm. for lunch and you're fucking up your lines mm. and they're all like... And you're just there going, I'm literally doing my best and I'm drowning and I don't know what I'm doing. And then after two days, you actually just like snap into it. And, mm. and I felt that my acting improved as the week went on and then when I watched it, it was actually fairly consistent all the way through. Um, was it shot over a week then? It, was, it, it took six, to, six days to film it. And then and so when I watched it back, it was just like, oh, look, um, the stuff that we filmed first is just as good as the stuff we filmed last. So I guess what happened over the week, then my confidence grew, and now I'd love to do more acting. I think it's really, um, I think it's, you know, not, not, I mean, I get nervous about stand-up, and I find it, you know, <laughs> you know, nerve-wracking and all of that. But um, I love it, and I, I, I love writing in the shows, and I love writing, and I love performing. Uh, I just get really nervous about it, and if I wasn't doing this, I don't know what else I'd do. So that's that's amazing. But I also really love doing the acting, and I'd like to do more of that. And it's kind of um, hopefully I can like do more of it in the future, and it's all good. But if not, yeah. I'm happy just gigging. It's good. It's good. Mm. It's I think good. it's one of those things. One of those jobs is always a roller coaster thing, isn't it? You're always up and down how you feel about it. That's it. And I, and I just think you just get, you should just go into everything with an open mind and just yeah. go, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I always said that I'd never do panel shows, and then I did it, and it's just like, do you know what? After it's all said and done, I was all right at it, and I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed the end result. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's something, you know, never say never. And, um, yeah, but, God, fucking hell, some of it is fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we better yeah, stop because there's, there's an audience out there that yeah, we're we better show. show. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Nick. Thanks for that. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for having me. So that was Nick Helm there, and since that interview was recorded, Nick's most recent show, One Man Mega Myth, was also nominated for a Foster's Comedy Award, and you can catch that show at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London on the 8th and 9th of November. Also, the pilot we were discussing there, Uncle, has since been commissioned for a full series by BBC Three, so we look forward to seeing that as well. But now we turn our attention to an interview we recorded with Richard Herring back in June 2013, just prior to him previewing his latest show, We're All Going to Die, at Hitchens Mostly Comedy. During our conversation, Richard discusses how he started out in comedy, how he approaches writing a new show, and what it's like to have written a daily blog for the best part of 11 years. Here it is. So this is your 10th consecutive Edinburgh show? Yes, I mean, I've done most of the last 26 years at the Edinburgh Fringe. I missed, right. missed five Edinburghs, but this is my 22nd one because the first and the second one uh, uh, count uh, add an extra one. Uh, but I've done, 
I've now basically done 10 different stand-up shows, but I've done 10 in a row because I redid Christ on the Bike and Talking Cock, but they did both change a little bit. So it's 10 different shows in 10 years. Which how, is, how does that feel, sort of reaching that? It's good. I, was, I think that's what I was sort of aiming for, even like three or four years ago, or even five or six years ago. I think it would be good to sort of get to 10 and then yeah. see how I feel. But, you know, it's, I, I see it as my main job to do the, the stand-ups, the main thing and everything else. Well, it's sorry it's that. <laughs> There's a toilet above our heads, I should say, that's uh, just so much as flushed. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the stand-up's the main thing for me, and all the other stuff feeds into it, so any TV appearances, all the podcasts or anything, really, in the hope of getting people to see my live shows. So right. I think I will carry on doing them, whether I'll do the one a year is yeah. another question, but I probably will for a bit. Do you find it daunting, starting a new show each year and finding a new subject? Does it feel like a sort of... A process that you do every year that you're used to doing now or yeah it can be difficult um but usually something's presented itself obviously the last three years i've done two old shows so that's made it a little bit easier yeah um but um yeah i, I didn't really i wasn't quite sure what i was going to do this year i had less idea you, with a love show a couple of had a couple of ideas for routines and and that seemed to be the way i was heading and for hit the mustache we sort of had that idea about growing the moustache and on the Andrew Collins podcast and I'd also got a routine kind of in the back of my mind with this one I didn't really have any routines in my mind I just uh, I just kind of thought it's a big subject and I'm quite and it's I guess it, it's nice when they sort of slightly interlock with the last one and the lo- with the love love came out of the Christ on the bike one because it was sort of about questioning things that you believe is true that are as ridiculous as religion really which yeah. love is as you know as fanciful as religion uh, but people believe in it, if you could argue. Uh, and I think with death and penises, <laughs> they're similar in that they're both um, treated through through euphemism. People don't really talk about them, although people are obsessed with both of them, they don't really talk about them seriously. Yeah. And so, I, and I, it is one of my other obsessions, really, as a kid. I was always terrified of, you know, I, I, the minute I knew I was going to die, I was sort of terrified to do anything in case it killed me. Mm. And so I've always been sort of fascinated with it. But, any, but anything like that that uh, has that kind of air of mysticism and ritual around it is always going to be funny yeah um and you know it was a challenge to try and it still is a challenge to try and make it funny to an audience of people yeah. an hour about death mm. uh, and i don't want to it's not like just uh, tangentially about death you know it's about what happens when we die and right. why why do yeah. we avoid it and why don't we laugh at it or why do we laugh at it uh, but uh you know it seemed like a good subject so I, I think having done so many big subjects in the last four or five years yeah, i felt like i had to do another Another big one. Though next year I might just do a sort of silly stand-up show. I think. We'll yeah. See. Have the last because the last few years have been very much themes, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, they've nearly all have been they've nearly all been themes. I think you know, Menage and and some like Yogurt were kind of more like just stand-up shows, but they did have a theme among, around them. And someone like Yogurt was all about questioning mundanity, and yeah. Menage was about loneliness and loneliness and um, working out where I was. But yeah, apart from that, it has pretty much all been. Um, <laughs> has pretty much all been uh, theme stuff, but you know I think that's good because it makes it focuses your mind on, um, on on a subject and then you can sort yeah. of explore it. You can read about it a bit and that might give you some ideas. But just if you're thinking about it, I've got this massive resource of ten years of warming up or eleven years of warming up, and I can put death into the search engine and a lot oh, of really? the, a lot of the stuff is, from this has come from. Right. Oh, that's good. so that kind of background of doing warming up every day yeah. has given you the sort of material it's just there yeah I mean I did it with love as well you put love in and, and, and then some things come up that you've forgotten about oh, right. wow. um, and not you know with death because I'm a comedian a lot of the one ones to mention death aren't necessarily about yeah. Yeah, physical yeah. death yeah. Uh, they're about comedic death <laughs> right, but yeah. you know, there was lots of, you know, there's, the, the amazing thing about that there's nearly 4,000 entries of warming up now Wow. so you know you sort of think even if I do 12 a year that are 
yeah good yeah, yeah. then that's still easily an Edinburgh show yeah uh, and being able to go back that far so yeah I think probably at the moment about 70% of the show is probably stuff from that's originated in warming up so one of the routines is nearly a decade old I've completely forgotten about it it's just I've never done it as a routine I just yeah. wrote a blog about it and forgot about it um so yeah, but it's it's you know, it, and then usually when I'm thinking about subject, I start writing blogs about it anyway, because yeah. it's the back of mind. Though that hasn't happened quite as much, but a little bit. So with, with warming up, is there a pressure? Do you feel a pressure to kind of keep it going now you've been going for this long? Do you kind of, or yeah. do you just sort of, is it just part of routine of life and just sort of? It's it a little bit more. It goes through it goes through stages where I resent it, and it goes through stages <laughs> where I find it difficult. But actually, for a couple of years at least, it's been quite easy because you just decide to. Girl, you know, you can sit there thinking about it for all day if you want. Yeah. And occasionally I still do that, but usually I just go, right, I'm going to write about this, whatever happens, and if it's funny, it's funny, if it's not, it's not. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I have to think, stretch a little bit. For it. I spend a lot of my day writing and doing comedy yeah. and mm. driving around or sitting around doing nothing. So it's quite hard sometimes to think of a funny thing. So I think it's, bit, it's a bit more a diary of a working comedian than I initially intended to be. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, you know, when you're on tour, it's very hard to write about anything else other than the tour. But you, you, if you really push yourself, you do find things. And I think a lot of the stuff... I wasn't doing stand-up when I started writing the blogs. I wasn't even thinking about writing stand-up routines. Mm. But, uh, you know, some of those things that I did write early on were, did lend themselves to becoming quite strange stand-up routines because they were about very specific minutiae that I don't think you... If I was doing stand-up, mm. I don't think I'd have thought, oh, I'll do a routine about... Um, Buying nine yogurts and the woman saying someone likes yogurts, which I then obviously did and they turned to a massive routine. But I don't think that would have struck me on the day. Yeah. And I don't think it even struck me at the time. And it only struck yeah. me the next day when I wrote the blog. I was really struggling to think of something. Oh, well, I, I did get a bit annoyed when that woman said someone likes yogurt to me. So then that's what this happens. Sometimes something happens, you go, well, that's the blog. And sometimes you have to search for it the next day. But yeah, it's a great exercise in terms of trying to find the funny in being, yeah. and being observant, even if it's in retrospect but also in just terms of getting on and writing. So I write them pretty quick. And mm -hmm. today I wrote a blog and then I got amused by something on short about people writing about um, is the sketch show dead, uh, which is just a, re just a thing I've seen so many times over my career yeah. that I then just wrote a sort of stupid thing for Chortle in 30 minutes as well, right. which, is, which isn't too, no, which wasn't too bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it comes, once you get into the habit of being able to go, tch, 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 you yeah. can knock something together, but it's all right pretty quickly. Mm. But with the, something like the Metro articles, I will spend a bit longer kind of, Structuring them and you know and perfecting them and getting them down to six hundred words, mm. which I think is actually quite a good um, exercise for doing stand up. I think if you can write a stand up routine that's six hundred words, not you've got to tell a story in six hundred words. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of brief enough but long enough to to do quite a lot, but it's not not stretching it out and actually to for most of my stories will fit into six hundred words. I've discovered so right. it's quite interesting. When you first started out, did you have any intention of doing stand up on your own or? Was it I didn't really want to be a stand-up. I did, I did do when I first came to London. I mean, I was really into doing sketch comedy. Uh, as, a student, as a student, I, we wrote sketches and we performed sketches and I did the Oxford Review and uh, that I liked Monty Python and yeah. the young ones, which wasn't really a sketch show, but it was sort of more like a sketch show than stand-up. Uh, and not an iPhone news and things like that. And so that was my what I really liked. And in, in a way, because I'd had a, some bad experiences early on in Edinburgh being bullied by stand-up, so I <laughs> almost didn't want to do stand-up because of that. Right. I felt I wasn't welcome in their world. They made that kind of sort of clear. And they, uh, it had been quite an unpleasant experience as a 19-year-old to go and be sort of barracked and jostled by yeah. uh, people that you kind of quite admired as, <laughs> as yeah, professional yeah, stand-ups. Really, yeah. So I did do stand-up in 89, 19, probably up to probably just about into 92. And I did okay, but I just didn't really have any focus, and I was, and I just decided I preferred 
working with other people and did the double atmosphere obviously but wanted mm. to do sketches and acting really I think um, so it was no I didn't really I wasn't really keen on doing stand up and I didn't think it was that I was quite snootily about against it and I thought it was just people telling jokes often and they were is a bit limited as an art form, which I yeah. now do not right. agree with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and you know, coming back to it was the thing that sort of saved me, really, I think. I mean, all these things, doing the, the blog, stand-up and the podcast are probably the things that gave me a focus yeah. to take me away from the other things I was doing. And I think it's been, you know, I've been very lucky. It's not been a planned um, career. And uh, I didn't really anticipate it being even as successful as it is, which isn't that successful. Uh, but yeah, coming to back stand up was and doing stuff on my own was a massive leap forward because I'd sort of decided I couldn't yeah. do it, and then finding how much you could do with it. Yeah, I think you know in the, in the early whatever people say, the stand up comedy in the early nineties was was pretty bad, and I didn't fit into that right. world. And yeah. it was it was lots of people, lots of laddish boys doing one line jokes. Yeah, and when I came back to stand up in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. I really felt like I fit into this world of sort of slightly more kooky and yeah. experimental stuff going on, as well as yeah. still those guys doing doing this stuff. And I'm not really against that. It just it, there wasn't really an outlet in the early '90s for for something a bit more experimental or odd, um, and it was a bit more like joke, joke, joke. So uh, you know, it's kind of weird. and I think partly I fit a bit into it because the people who were doing stand up had been largely influenced by Stu, but a little bit by both of us right, yeah, stand up. Yeah. So. I did sort of fit, fit much more nicely. You kind of influenced yourself in a bizarre well, way. Well, I've influenced the scene, even though I'd done pretty badly the first time I did it. So, uh, yeah, so that that was kind of nice. But yeah, it's my you know I now see myself as a stand-up comedian, which ten years ago I absolutely didn't. Do you think it's easier as a stand-up when people know who you are to a degree and have an expectation of what you do? Or um, we always use that excuse, don't we ourselves? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like when they know I, who we are. I don't. It's nice when you get your own audience and they come yeah. to see you, but then you know they then have to. I rely on the same people coming to see me every year as I tour and bringing a friend, and so you still have to be good. And if you're not yeah. good, they're not going to keep coming. I don't think, to be honest, most, most the thing I get is someone will bring five friends and they'll all go. None of we've never heard of you, but our friend says you're good. Right. Uh, if I do stand-up clubs, it's often nobody knows who I am. So it's you know hardly anyone knows who I am. So it's like you know I, that's what I like about doing the circuit yeah. is that's just proving that I you know it isn't just about people going oh I like him because I know him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't you know I, I'm not that successful that it's. I think once you once you get into these big auditoriums and you've got to, to 5,000, 2,000 really excited people who've paid lots of money to see you, yeah. which is something that has not yet happened to me, uh, it's pretty hard to fuck that up, if you're a good, if it, especially if you're good. Yeah. But even if you're not good, the audience, are, the audience have so much goodwill towards you and have yeah. spent so much money that they want it to be good. So you've actually got to really fuck it up. And it's quite hard to fuck up to 5,000 people. Yeah. Uh, it's playing to 30 people or 20 people, which I've done a lot in my life, or yeah. less than that is very difficult and if you can do that you can do anything yeah mm. we found doing three fringe things if people haven't invested anything in it sometimes well yeah. I mean, maybe it's a more honest audience I don't know yeah I mean yeah I suppose it's 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 tough isn't it but then saying that we've had the best shows to four people yeah and yeah. some of the worst shows you've to got to just perform as if it's a, as if it's a massive full auditorium well, yeah. yeah not to the extent that you're shouting but <laughs> to the extent you're giving your full performance I saw a uh, flamenco dancer once from late night in London and there was literally five people in the bar, and I was the only person even paying her any attention. And she was still right. doing this flamenco dance yeah. as if ever, she was, you know, in the middle of Wembley Arena. And it was, and I, I don't even like dancing, and I don't like flamenco dancing. Yeah. But she was just spellbinding and amazing. And I thought that's, you know, mm. that, that's what you have to do, not flamenco dancing. Don't yeah, do not don't, specifically. Don't think, <laughs> oh, it's not going well. I'll do flamenco dancing. Yeah. What I'm saying is perform yeah. as if you know you're playing to a room full of people. 
Are there any things you really still want to achieve with what you do? Are there things you want to try? Or Yeah, I mean, you know, loads of things. Yeah. I, mean, I haven't really done that much, I don't think, so just, <laughs> I haven't got that far. No. I'd like to do more. I'd, I'd write lots of scripts. I'd like some of the scripts to make it to TV or wherever. Uh, and be made and do some more of that. I would like. I'd quite. My main ambition is just keep working till I die. Uh, hopefully, in you know, twenty five or so years time, uh, or longer. But, uh, <laughs> but hopefully not immediately, because that would be quite easy to achieve if I yeah. die tonight. Mm-hmm. I can. I mean, I would have succeeded. <laughs> I worked tonight. I'll die tonight. But um, so you know, I, I think it's just keeping going. Really, is, is as much about anything and, and see what comes up. Because I think I don't. I used to be very ambitious and used to want to be the most famous and best comedian and you know, yeah. the John Cleese or Rick Mail or whatever of my generation. And I quickly realised, A, I wasn't going to be that because my generation has some very, very talented people who, were, you know, who I worked with almost immediately. Right. Uh, and, uh, but also, you kind of realise that's not what it's about. I think it's just about, I just want to keep working and keep creating stuff. So I hopefully not you know, lose that ability or... Yeah. Hopefully, still creating relevant and interesting stuff, but you just you know you never know with this business how things will change. It could you know the, the fashions could completely yeah. change, um, but it sort of feels like I've been going long enough now that it'd be weird if something happened so apocalyptic. The word I want to say, not apocalyptic, apocalyptic that I you know there's no work for me at all. Yeah, I've got I work in a lot of fields, and I you know I feel like I can carry on working in one of those fields if everything else goes tits up, but. Um, as long as I'm still having ideas, it's you know it's just I, I think I'm very lucky. I have the autonomy and freedom to do whatever I want, mm. and sometimes being more successful means you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want. I don't think you know yeah. I don't think Ricky. Well, if Ricky Gervais had done Hitler moustache, A his management would have said don't do Hitler moustache, mm. and B people would have seen in the street and gone, why has Ricky Gervais got a Hitler moustache? Yeah. So it wouldn't have worked with a famous person doing right, it. Yeah, you just yeah, think yeah, of it's some kind of joke. Yeah. It needed to be someone who no one knew. Or no one really knew, and um, and also at least had, had to be someone who wasn't going to destroy their glittering right, ad yeah. career with advertisers yeah. And yeah. by walking around with their hidden stash. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know that that freedom um, of not being massively famous is actually a really important thing to me. Yeah. And if, if I become massively famous, which I can't really see happening, then I'll take the you know I'll take the rough with the smooth on that. But yeah. I'd much rather be. I think this is the. I think I'm in the. At my whole career, I think I'm in the perfect place at the moment. I'm kind of personally quite happy, yeah. and I'm coming up with ideas, and uh, I can I'm, I earn enough money, and I can do whatever I want, and you know I'm still churning stuff out. So yeah. it's uh, it you know it feels good to be here. In five yeah. years' time, I'll either be more successful or less successful. I doubt I'll be exactly the same. Maybe I'll be exactly the same, still happy. Yeah. Well, I, I know for people like us, we really look up to what you do because yeah. you do so much yourself, and you keep creating things, and with the podcast and everything you do, it's a real sort of um, it's exactly the sort of career we'd good. want to have, yeah. Because yeah. we we've seen a lot of people we know, comedians who've gone on, done very well, very successful, but at a kind of with that price to pay that they have to do certain things and they're restricted yeah. by their management. Such a range. Yeah. And you kind of think, I want the management, but I don't want that restriction <laughs> no. on what we no, can do. No, it's difficult to get to so that stage. You know, it's difficult at the stage I'm at. It's difficult to get to the stage they're at. Yeah. Uh, there are there are pros and cons. Obviously, obviously, if you get very successful, then you get your scripts made and you get. You know, mm. But then that can be a bad thing as well. As you've seen with Ben Elton, if you if there's no one going, I'll hold on. Whoa, 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 let's just take a second look at this, yeah. which then is the next thing that happens. So you know, I think it's uh, keeping in perspective. But if you love what you're doing and just keep doing what you're doing and try to do the best that you can and keep working at it probably eventually someone's going to spot it yeah and even if they don't i think the thing to realize is what you're doing is the end so if you're doing stand-up 
in order to get on TV or if you're doing stand-up in order to become a presenter or an actor, mm. then that's not, you know, it's not going to make you happy. Or yeah. if you're doing podcasts, you think, if I do this podcast, I'll get my own radio show. That's not the way it's got to be. You've got to think, let's just do this, yeah. what we're doing exactly, as, yeah. for its own sake. Yeah. It's the end. If anything else happens, then terrific. Yeah. But, right. you know, and if you do it well, probably something else will happen. So yeah. if you just, if you put some care and interest and attention into it, and uh, you know, and are good at what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, but, but also, it is just the relentlessness of doing things. I think it's very. And I was doing this ten years ago. I was sort of sitting back and waiting for the phone to ring mm. and waiting for people to pay me to write stuff or mm. whatever or performing stuff. And you can nowadays you can just get on and do whatever you want. You set up a microphone and you can have a conversation with someone. Yeah. It might be yeah. funny. It might be interesting. Yeah. It might be boring. It doesn't matter. You by doing that, you know, I did. Done like two hundred hour long conversations with Andrew Collins, and then I've done you know another hundred or so uh, other podcasts chatting to people, and you get good at chatting to people by do, by just doing it. Like, you, I think that's you, what we're aiming to do, isn't yeah. it? I think that's our plan now. Is kind of go right. Well, you know, we like the idea of talking to people. We think, well, let's just do that, yeah. and then we, you know, and you're not technically it. writing either. It's just sort of no, happening. No, you exactly. know, is, uh, yeah. yeah, but it's you know, it's a skill, and it's a difficult thing to you know, it's a difficult thing to be to get it right. Um, and, but you get it right by practicing. So that's you know writing a blog every day. However good a writer you think you are, you'll get better if you keep writing. Yeah. So I think just the very exercise that I've written probably you know n- n- nearly always at least a thousand words a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, occasionally yeah. less than that. Then you if if I haven't got better as a writer after ten years, eleven years <laughs> of that, then there's something wrong. Something wrong. Yeah. But I also you can be way too confident early on. You can think you're amazing, and I'm sure I did. Uh, uh, but you will get if you keep working on it, you'll get better. So it's it, you know I think it's it's very nice for you to say those things and it's and that in a way it's enough for me to know that the people who I work with have a modicum of respect yeah. for what I do and they don't all do so that's okay <laughs> as well. But it's you know I think I think you you and I think that people pick that up. So I think in the end people are very cynical and it takes a long. You know we'd go to Edinburgh in the nineties and they go oh the minute you're on TV you'll stop going to Edinburgh. And we knew we wouldn't. I think both of us knew we wouldn't because we both really liked Edinburgh. But it takes twenty five years of doing it before people go, yeah, maybe actually they just yeah, really like coming right, to yeah, Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. So, so it takes a while to, to bring people around you, I think. Mm. And um, uh, but uh, and you know, I think. But once you've done it, once I've done all this stuff for free, I think you've only a very cynical person. A few people do go, "Oh, you're charging for those less yeah. square feet because you're trying to rip us off." And yeah, you're going to yeah, go, "Well." I'm charging you well, like one pound a podcast almost, and, yeah. and look at all yeah, this yeah. stuff you can have for free, and you can still have it for free. Yeah, so I think yeah. as long as people, res- you know, as long as you treat people with respect and don't rip them off, and um, and they know what you're about, I think they will then trust you. And but it takes takes a while to build up that trust. Yeah, definitely. And on that point, we should stop. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Show. Yeah, cheers. Hope you go well. Thank you. Yes, Richard Herring there. And you can catch We're All Going to Die at the Leicester Square Theatre in London from the 8th to the 13th of October, before it starts a UK tour through to the middle of 2014. For more details, or to catch up on his daily blog, Warming Up, visit www.richardherring.com. So, that brings to a close the third episode in our More Than Mostly Comedy podcast series. Thank you for listening. And also a big thank you to both Nick Helm and Richard Herring for appearing on the podcast. Do keep an eye out on both mostlycomedy.co.uk and doggitandfgrave.co.uk, which is D-O-G-G-E-T-T-A-N-D-E-P-H-G-R-A-V-E, a typo's nightmare, that one, for all the latest information on us, Mostly Comedy, and the More Than Mostly podcast. Or you can follow at doggitfgrave on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Bye.